you. Hello, Internet, and Happy New Year! I love the new year. It's coming right off of the Christmas holidays, which is my favorite holiday, and it's just, like, it gives you something to be hopeful and inspired by in these dark, cold months. So I hope everybody is feeling similarly inspired and ready to just hit the ground running in 2024, whether we're running towards our dreams or away from the dumpster fire behind us, whichever. <laughs> as long as we're staying active, right? Anyway, welcome. This is Peak Happy Podcast coming at you with uh, an analysis of Pokemon anime episodes from start to finish. And today we have an unexpected gem. I was not expecting this episode to hit me the way it did. Is it a good episode? Honestly, not really. And yet, it is very special to me. And I am looking forward to getting into that with all of you, because this is episode number 77, A Fan with a Plan. So let's get right into this plot. Despite Ash's reinvigorated commitment to get to his next gym battle from the last episode and time travel and, you know... The, speaking of starting New Year's off with a bang, um, it is actually May who unknowingly has a destination to reach first. When the gang passes through quaint Rubella Town, Max finds out about a contest being held there soon and May decides to enter, derailing the gym battle quest for the moment, but Ash is cool to let her have this. These kids have the best timing. They always have, wandering in just in time for the contest, the festival, the meteor shower that only happens once like every several thousand years, like all sorts of things. Like they just, they just time things perfectly. I do wonder a bit more about the contest circuit as it's presented in the anime, like how many contests are held, how often, is it like gyms where some are official and some less so? Probably. I'm I'm very curious, since this is a whole new world we're embarking on here in Hoenn, and we are getting a little bit of that info here, because uh, May's contest is classified as R1, which means she must have at least one ribbon in order to enter. Um, that's official Grand Festival rules. And I hope we do get to learn more about this in the future, because on the one hand, this makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, you only need five ribbons to get into the Grand Festival, and if there's not a stipulation that some of them have to be, say, R1, R2, R3, etc., why on earth wouldn't some trainer not as interested in challenging themselves uh, just go ham on a bunch of contests with no um, barrier, like needing an R1 classification or something, you know, and just basically know they're mostly going to be going up against newbies and thus get their five badges. I mean, obviously that trainer, when they got to the Grand Festival, would quickly find that by not challenging themselves, they did themselves a disservice because, you know, they may have got into the Grand Festival, but everybody else there will be of a higher caliber. So it doesn't necessarily do them any favors, but... And maybe the fact that it doesn't do them any favors is why we may not find any more information about this. Like, maybe there is no such stipulation, like, the classifications of R1, etc. are just for the trainers who actually want to improve their skills. <laughs> who knows? Anyway, May has to have at least one ribbon from a previous contest in order to enter. She does. She has two. 
And in doing so, uh, we learn about the Grand Festival, which blows my mind because I totally thought we'd covered this already. Drew thinks May should have covered this already. Because, uh, yeah, he's here too. He's got a too cool for you attitude. Like, he's above it all. He's entering this contest, but in his opinion, it's kind of small time. Like, keep in mind that while he's going on his whole spiel, May has extended her hand for a friendly handshake, and it's just been hanging there this whole time while Drew's being condescending. Like, if you think it's, you know, so small time and beneath you, don't enter, Drew. And if you're going to enter, then shut up about it. Like, I mean... Why do you even have to bring it up? It, like, if, it, if it's worth your time enough to enter, it's worth your time enough to treat it seriously. Like, what the heck? I thought we were maybe turning a corner with Drew. Last time we saw him, he was mildly less insufferable. But right now he's just channeling Hawaiian shirt Gary from the first season. Like, like these are qualities I absolutely do not find attractive in a human. So it boggles my mind that apparently Drew has a massive fan base within the show, much like our pal Gary, who find his behavior delightful. Like, really, Drew gets mobbed by a bunch of, of women, ranging from young to slightly older, but all of them older than him, notably, and they're flailing and showing off Drew-themed merch and asking for autographs, and when he refuses to give one, they love him all the more for it. And I am on board with Drew not giving autographs, because that is definitely a human right of his to not consent to be mobbed and forced to work when you're not on the clock, basically. And celebrities of all types have different personal ideas about what they will and will not do when it comes to uh, people crowding them for autographs. And that is, again, their human right to not have to do the thing if they did not sign up to do the thing. So with Drew, I get it. And it's not like he's really rude about it. It's just coming off of the last scene. You're not looking great, Drew. And I feel like I should make it clear, like, I do like Drew as a narrative device, as a complex character in the show. I just hate him in the sense that I have zero patience for him in the real world. Like, like he is definitely a real person and behaving with real character motivations. And it's quite dynamic and pulls a lot out of the rest of the cast. It's just I, I absolutely despise this type of person in my real life. And as a character, I am noticing that he behaves a bit differently with people who aren't May. Like, he is definitely still a bit haughty and aloof, but, like, not as deliberately provocative and mean. Which is very much like Gary was with Ash. Especially, um, when we got to Orange Island's Johto, and even some later Kanto. And, of course, present day. Which suggests that some of Drew's attitude is a bit of an act that he puts on to get some sort of reaction out of May than, you know, necessarily the way he inherently is. And it's also interesting to see him caught off guard when all these women run up and talk about how much they love him and they have all his pictures and stuff. Like, you can tell this makes him very uncomfortable. So again, I, I'm kind of on board with him refusing the autographs. Um... But he eventually does put on his diva face, does a hair flip, and plays it off. <laughs> but then one fan notices that Norman's daughter, May, is here. And May starts getting all the attention from the Norman-obsessed aunties. <laughs> Drew watches this complete shift of attention for a minute, 
then smirks and walks away. He's escaped the crowd. He's going to leave May to it. One of these fans, Savannah, is going to enter the Rubello contest, and she's stoked to be entering the same contest as May, Norman's daughter. Degrees of separation, my friend, and her fellow fans are shrieking in delight for her. And this is not a random assortment of fans. Oh no, they are organized. They call themselves the MFP, Mothers for Pokemon, and they're cheering on their stands and each other. It's truly something of note. Like, fandom brings out amazing skills out of people. We're talking cheerleading stunts here. Pyramids. So like I said, MFP stands for Mothers for Pokemon, if there was any doubt of these people's age before. They are a bunch of moms who came together in cheering on their favorite Pokemon trainers. And it's so cute. They're my fellow skating aunties. Oh my gosh. That's my reference. I'm sure there's some in every sport, fandom, or, or thing you can obsess over. A group of women who may or may not have families, all bonding together over their shared love of a person or thing, and also bound by society's collective determination to shame them for daring to be passionate about anything other than their husbands and children, let alone assemble and actually have some fun. Because, you know, when men have their man caves and their action figures and they get together and watch sports and talk about all their favorite players, it's, you know, it's acceptable, it's cool, but when women do it, it's, it's, uh, it's not. So, this MFP here, they love Pokemon, they love Pokemon contests, and they all are wives and mothers. And they used to just sit on the sidelines, but then they all started entering the contests too, and that's so cool, they empowered each other. Savannah is the only one of their group who's managed to win a ribbon so far, so she's the only one eligible to enter the Rubello competition here. The MFP decides to throw a welcome party for May and Max. And Ash too, I guess. They're kind of not interested in him. But, you know, since he's here. <laughs> it's okay, Ash, someday you'll have your own fan club and you'll always have me. And at the party, you know, I'm really warming up to these ladies. I know they're meant to be seen as a little ridiculous and over the top and yeah they can be but all of us are in our fandom like go to a football game and tell me it's any different than this I dare you but right now these gals are talking up May every time she disparages herself or puts Drew above her they're like don't sell yourself short you are talented you did real well in Verdanturf we all saw it and they know their stuff they've seen so many contests they know talent when they see it, and they'd have told her if they thought she stunk. It's enthusiastic, but not just lip service. Like, these ladies have seen May perform, and they know her Pokemon. They know specifics about how she did. So the praise means something, and it's a huge boost to May's confidence um, to see how other people see her. And that's something to think about, because on the one hand, like, you definitely... In life, you don't want to only be surrounded by people who talk you up. Like, you, you need to keep that perspective. But at the same time, as, as somebody who was always surrounded by people who were better at me in whatever thing I was trying to achieve, like, for example, I love to sing. I also like to write music and write lyrics. And I was surrounded growing up by people who were professional singers and people who were majoring in music composition and <laughs> and people who were triple threats in acting and it's speaking of acting I went to college uh to pursue a degree in acting and I you know from my somewhat small town middle class means was surrounded by people who went to like performing arts high schools and you know some of them had agents and and were actively working and had been 
you know, <laughs> coming from bigger cities. So there were more theater opportunities for them besides just their high school play. And, and when I took skating lessons, like I was surrounded by like, like one of the kids I was training with, like literally just one nationals. So, and, and art, I loved to draw. I drew my whole life long. I, all the time I drew and I painted and I did all sorts of artsy things, but I was always surrounded by people who were like really good and even making money and commissions and things. So it was like, I never saw my skills in a healthy way. And it, and to be fair, all these people were very encouraging of me pursuing the thing I loved. And and having them around, um, I was able to get perspective on the thing I was aiming for. I learned a lot of skills and techniques that I may not have learned otherwise and was introduced to a lot of things that helped me find what I love to do in the world. But it also fostered a narrative in me that, like, you might like this thing, but you're not good at it. Those other people are good at it. You're you're nothing. And it wasn't until life kind of pulled us in slightly different directions and other people saw different skills I had and went, oh, you're really good, that I ever started to conceive, like, oh, like, could I in my own right actually be legitimately good at this thing, just not as high up the ladder as this other person? <laughs> like, And I think for May, who... Um, is always belittled by Drew and is a newcomer to the contest realm. So everyone she meets in a contest arena is by, you know, default better than her because they've been doing it longer. She's hanging out with Ash and Brock and like, especially Ash, who are like, they've been Pokemon training for like a decade now. Of course, May's going to see herself in a slightly skewed way, like, I'm not actually good at Pokemon training. Ash is good at Pokemon training. I'm not actually good at contests. Drew is good at contests. I'm just, you know, I did win a few times, but I'm still just kind of here. And I think it's very helpful for her to have um, just some other people, some outside people going, no, nah, actually, you are good in your own right. Anyway, with May getting all this attention, Ash is starting to get jealous. Max calls him out on it, and he checks himself a bit. It, it, it's a cute interaction. Um, they all leave the party, and Savannah hangs back with May and the kids, while the other ladies head off, promising to get done everything on the list. When they ask what the list is, Savannah explains that she's a mom, and all her friends are, and she might be out here pursuing her own interests, but there's still responsibilities at home, chores, kids to take care of, and those responsibilities don't go away just because she wants to train Pokemon or have a girls' night. I mean, I have some questions for her spouse. Don't want to judge yet. We don't know her life, but I have some questions. Um, but that is part of being an adult is, um, like, it's, it's something that Ash, for example, doesn't have to consider on his journey, is that your responsibilities change when you become an adult. And in some ways it's harder, in some ways it's more rewarding, but like Savannah can't just grab her Pokemon and go on a journey and have a great time because she has children at home that need taking care of. And she decided that that was going to be a priority too in her life. A bigger priority if she's doing it right. And so pursuing her Pokemon trainer interests is going to look a little differently than for Ash and May. And Brock 100% gets that. He's been the primary caretaker before, trying to balance Pokemon training and running the gym on top of making sure all his 
brothers and sisters are fed and clothed. And Savannah praises him for those homemaking skills, saying one day he'll be in high demand. Brock takes that to mean, ah, yes, I'll be a domestic god and the ladies will fall at my feet. But like, really, Brock, didn't I just say a few episodes ago that you need adults to talk to you about this stuff? Like, this is what I mean. We need more adults pointing out to him that he doesn't need to try so hard. He already has qualities that show what he can bring to a relationship table as a life partner. And being able to handle a household and not being afraid of traditionally female gender roles, like, that is that is great. And the ability to carry your weight and play as an equal partner, the ability to balance the different priorities in your life successfully, like, all of that, very attractive. You don't need to make a giant speech or go crazy over every pretty girl. Like, you are already doing great advertising just being yourself. And when you're not a teenager, it's gonna work real well for you. So, Savannah has two Pokemon, Lairon and Flareon, Steel and Fire. Um, she plans to use both of them because Rubella Festival follows the Grand Festival rules, like one has to use two different Pokemon during the different portions of the competition. Ash is like, oh yeah, and May's like, wait, what? And I love that Ash, who doesn't even go to this school, has paid attention enough that this information is slightly familiar, and May is the one without a clue. Like, one of the main differences between Ash and May. Like, in some ways, they're so alike. But here, when it comes to Pokemon training, Ash was on it. It's not even his discipline, but he learned everything he could. And if he didn't know something, once you told him, he clung to that info, because this is my love and my dream and my career. My very life is Pokemon Mastery, and the Pokemon League is how I get there. And May is just kind of like, I don't hate this. I think I might not suck at this. Let's give it a whirl. Oh, am I supposed to be somewhere doing things? Is there an end goal I should learn about? <sighs> I love you, May. You're doing fantastic. Go eat your ramen. You're fine. The group walks down the street uh, through a small market, and Brock's attention is caught by some very lovely ripened tomatoes, and he bonds with Savannah over preparing healthy food for families and spotting great deals. Very traditional Japanese housewife type stuff. I'm not sure how creepy this is. I mean, creepy from Brock's point of view. Savannah, like the proper adult she is, is keeping things very platonic. But it's a bit unclear of how much Brock is actively flirting and how much he's just flattered to have some positive attention and praise. Um, how much of it is platonic towards Savannah and how much of it is just Brock's aspiring to future domestic stud muffin. It, it worries me just because Brock has... Uh, well, Brock has canonically never fallen in love with a girl younger than him, except for Ash. Everybody else is his age or above, and he, he tends to go for the older women, in, including Ash's mom. I, I And I'm honestly not sure how much of his character is conflating wanting positive attention from females and wanting romantic attention from females as the same thing. You know, he... I think we can all assume his mother did not do uh, an A-plus job of making sure all his emotional needs are met. So how much of it is, oh my gosh, an older mother figure is paying attention to me and praising me and bonding with me about uh, a shared interests and all that. How much of it is him actively flirting with Savannah because he thinks she's hot? And how much of him is, I'm a teenager and I don't know how to sort the difference between those feelings yet? <laughs> 
Either way, Ash deliberately looks away from that nonsense and turns to Mei, like, so, Pokemon? He asks if she's picked what Pokemon she wants to use yet in the upcoming competition. She hasn't, but she's still got plenty of time to figure it out. Uh, Brock is showed up a bit in the fight uh, to grab a great turnip by a little girl who turns out to be Savannah's daughter, Sandra. Mom is surprised to see her out here doing the shopping. Sandra said she got home from school and mom wasn't there, so she thought she'd be a good daughter and do a little grocery shopping. She says this easily, like proud of herself, and the shopkeeper praises her too, like, oh, what a good little girl you've got there. But Savannah is a little, like, she seems to have some mixed feelings about this. Like, she's very proud of Sandra, stepping up and taking responsibility and and for being helpful and competent out there in the market. These are all things she wants to instill in her daughter. But also, as a traditional Japanese housewife, going out and doing the grocery shopping is her job. She's supposed to be out here picking up the vegetables for dinner, getting great deals on everything, and being home in time for her kids, and nothing else. We'll circle back to that. Uh, But Savannah introduces her daughter to the kids, and while little Sandra seems happy enough to meet them... She's not as into the whole Pokemon contest fandom thing. She's kind of dismissive of her mom's passion, like apologizes for how her mom gets carried away, brings up how you and your friends get at contests and events, and she's kind of embarrassed for her mom. May asserts that uh, Mom Savannah has been great and really helpful while May prepares for the contest, which is 100% true. Not only does Savannah know the actual rules, uh, she's been doing wonders for May's confidence and soothing her anxieties. Like, this episode is taking a wildly different turn than I thought it would when Drew showed up. Sandra is more interested in Ash's Pikachu. She cuddles it and says she wants to be a Pokemon trainer too and go on a Pokemon journey. She says her mom did that once too, traveled with Pokemon, and for some reason Savannah seems embarrassed to have that brought up. Or at least some more mixed feelings. Anyway, they invite the kids over for dinner. So May trains in the yard while Brock helps Savannah prepare dinner, and uh, training's not going great. All of her Pokemon are tripping over themselves, nothing's going right. And now May's anxieties are slipping in. But then she remembers that Everything the MFP said to her earlier in the day and how she was amazing in Verdant Turf and she's doing really very well. She might even be a Pokemon prodigy? The prodigy bit goes a little to her head, maybe, uh, but the memory overall gives her more confidence and restores her spirit. And then she hears Drew's voice nearby. She and her Pokemon inch around some bushes to watch him training his masquerade. May hasn't seen this Pokemon before. She needs the Pokedex. It's a bug type. Its wings look like giant eyes. Camouflage. Anyway, Masquerain is very good at what it does. May gets caught watching, and Drew's a little snide about it, but May takes his suggestion to approach him and start a conversation. Which goes poorly. He talks about how he put in a lot of effort into catching Masquerain, and specifically Masquerain. He was looking for a Pokemon that had speed, endurance, all the qualities that played to his own strengths and style of coordinating, plus was visually appealing, had massive crowd appeal. Basically, he low-key auditioned Pokemon, and once he found this Masquerain, he went all in on trying to catch it. And Drew knew exactly what he wanted to do with Masquerain once it made the team, so he hasn't wasted a second of training. It's a little pompous in the delivery, um, but it is 
important information for May to at least think about if she wants to do this professionally. Like, I, the show kind of presents humans and Pokemon working together in, in lots of different ways, but when it comes to Pokemon trainers as, like, a working relationship, a sort of a coach and athlete sort of situation, and, you know, a gym leader catching a Pokemon, like, they are typically expecting a lot of things from that Pokemon. Um, just like Ash, when he catches a Pokemon, like, he likes to be friends with all of them, but it's like, he's aiming for the Pokemon League, he's aiming to battle, and that's like a conversation and communication that needs to happen. It's also partly why Pokemon have the ability to not be caught if they don't want to be, and Meowth has worked very hard to not be caught when he doesn't want to be. We'll see that in Unova. And Drew's awareness of the fact that contest coordinating is a job, and if he catches a Pokemon, they will be expected to do that job, and he's not going to catch Pokemon that are just going to, you know, sit on the bench or rot in a Pokeball. He's he's actively looking for Pokemon that are capable and willing to do that job. Like, that's kind of responsible, and I don't think May's there yet, but again, it's something important to think about if she intends to make this a career but most importantly, in this conversation, pompous as it is, Drew hasn't actively been mean yet. And when May praises him, he does thank her. I mean, you can leave off the you have excellent taste bit, but I mean, gosh, I'm, I'm just, I'm so scared. I want this boy to improve, darn it. And especially since May is just walking right into this friendly and naive and expecting the best, like she's not even bracing herself for potential teasing. Drew asks about May's Bulbasaur, her her new Bulbasaur. It's a rare Pokemon in Hoenn. He asks if she's going to enter it, and May confesses she hasn't decided what Pokemon to use yet. Bulbasaur is too busy chatting to Masquerain to listen to May, so when Drew teases May, like, I don't know, looks like a discipline problem. I'll give him that one. It's not mean, just a little bit of poking fun. The tone isn't too bad. It's just... I'm just white-knuckling my way through this conversation, begging Drew not to say something truly horrible. Gosh, boy, you're a roller coaster. I don't even like this ship. Why am I on this cruise? But his little bit of ribbing has made up May's mind. Bulbasaur is getting entered in that contest. May walks away in a huff, and Drew laughs to himself, smiling, and like, okay, that wasn't too bad, like... If you look at it on its surface, it's very Ash and Gary, like, one's poking fun at the other and not being overtly mean in the teasing. It's just mean because you know the other one's going to react. And and even a little bit of interaction that might suggest these two are, are friends. And lots of us have that friend who is just a little too snarky for their own good sometimes. And some days we're less okay with that than others, and they just know how to push all your buttons. But I'm not sure May and Drew have that understanding yet, where this is annoying ribbing of each other, but not threatening. Like, there's still this underlying threat of potential bullying about to happen, and I'm I'm just so afraid. Looking at Drew's face here, I think, I think honestly, he just likes to push May's buttons at this point. Like, I don't think he actually dislikes her. I... I don't even think he intended to be mean today. So I'm I'm just going to dare to let down my shields a little and accept that his intentions are not terrible. However, I'm still kind of worried that he's not demonstrated that he can recognize when he's gone too far and he seems 
like the type who would, you know, I put her down because I want to push her to be better. And that is not cool, especially not with May. Just, she's just not the type of person who would respond well to that. He doesn't seem to have fully figured himself out yet, even. And we saw him earlier having kind of a break in the mask, as it were. It's not often that Drew is honest with other characters or the audience. He's got to work. The boy has to work on his emotional maturity. And I just don't remember everything that goes down between these two. But there's a reason there are so many AMVs set to teardrops on my guitar. And I know he's going to be a brat and blindside me. I'm, I don't know why I'm so invested. I don't even like this ship. Why am I here? So the next morning, May registers for the contest, and she turns down an offer to hang with the gang in order to prep Bulbasaur. And all her friends are surprised. Ash is like, May, Bulbasaur discovered what a city is like three days ago, and now you want to chuck it into a contest? As it is, Bulbasaur is a little awed and maybe intimidated by the crowd here in the Pokemon Center. Like, this is not the life it's used to. May still thinks things will be fine. She notices Savannah across the room, who is shaking. Savannah has stage fright. Like, severely so. Poor thing. Uh, she begs May to help her practice. She's terrified. May puts things in perspective for us, though, because Savannah has only been in one other contest before. But she does have a ribbon. That means she won her first and only contest. No matter how you swing that, she is good. She has got some talent, and she pushed through her fears and won the contest. She's got courage. I'm liking Savannah more and more. And Savannah seems a little calmer when she sees May's Bulbasaur. She really does love Pokemon. And her first Pokemon was a Bulbasaur. Savannah, are you from Kanto? Her daughter did say mom went on a Pokemon journey. It seems it's very true. Um, and right now, Savannah's Bulbasaur lives with her parents. That's cute. Also cute, Sandra. She runs into Ash, Brock, and Max while running errands for her mom. With the contest going on, Savannah has a lot on her plate, and Sandra says that her mom is always doing stuff for her. So she's happy to do stuff for her mom now and then. There is so much cute in this episode. Less cute is Team Rocket if you were wondering where they were. Jessie wants to enter the Pokemon contest too, but Jessie has never won a contest, so she doesn't have a ribbon. So now they've shown up with their balloon and grabby arms to steal May's fanny pack, where her ribbon case is stored, and Savannah's necklace, which is where her ribbon hangs. How mean, and just when the two were in the middle of a practice battle too. To be sure, kind of a weird practice battle, because every time May got one over on Savannah, she'd start praising May's Pokemon, and good job, May! Like, so complimentary, it's, it's making May uncomfortable, like, we're supposed to be fighting right now. <laughs> Probably talk about that later, but first, let's be down Team Rocket. Shouldn't be too hard, James is already done, like, he's so not here right now, checked out doing the motto, like, surrender now, do me a favor, or I'll have to fight. <laughs> Meowth is checked out, too. At least Jessie returns the fanny pack once she pilfers the ribbons, which was very sporting of you, Jessie. Like, I think May keeps her Pokeballs in there, too. Like, that's a... <laughs> Eyes on the prize and only on the prize. So May asks Bulbasaur to attack with Razor Leaf, with Jessie counters with Dustox. Ash and company run up. Presumably they saw the balloon hovering over the city. <laughs> He's ready to go. Like, what's Team Rocket done now? Meanwhile, Savannah asks Flareon to use Flamethrower. Jesse was not prepared for that. I don't know why. May has a Torchic. 
But luckily, Wobbuffet was prepared. It's been a minute since we've seen the King of Deflection in action. And then Pikachu gets on this with Thunderbolt. Brock calls out Mudkip and Lombre like we are going at the Rockets with extreme prejudice today. <laughs> uh, Reflect withstands it all. Wobbuffet doesn't even break a sweat. Jesse goes so far as to taunt the twerps like, oh, thanks, Wobbuffet needed a bath. Wobbuffet's like, Solmas! <laughs> yes, I did! I love you, Wobbuffet. You're a king. <laughs> Sandra angrily runs after the balloon like, you can't just steal my mom's ribbon and get away with it. And now Team Rocket is significantly less sporting. They have Dustox use Psybeam directly on a little girl. To knock her off her feet, but looks like it's gonna hurt. And Savannah, proud mom, gets out there and moms. Once May's Bulbasaur yanks Sandra clear, she has Flareon burn that balloon down. <laughs> like we thought we were going hard before. Flareon and Savannah's angry mom energy is more than Team Rocket can handle. Because they're not fighting uh, Wobbuffet. Oh, oh no, they are done with that crap. Flareon attacks the very flammable and oxygenated balloon, which may even be full of hydrogen based on how it explodes. Uh, either way, that balloon is it's gone. <laughs> the good guys run up and demand Team Rocket return the ribbons, if indeed they are not incinerated. <laughs> Jessie declares she'd give up Meowth in chains first. It's very bold of her since her balloon is in flames, her teammates are anything but supportive, and now she's insulted Meowth. Like, Jessie's backed into a corner. Fine, she gives them up. I don't want them. It, it, it was pointed out that she might not be able to convince people that they were actually hers. It does seem like badges and ribbons are attached to official records and trainer IDs. So, the ribbons are returned. Meow says, Thank you, would you please put out the balloon? Ash, I guess so. No one's quite sure what they're doing here. <laughs> Except for Sandra and Savannah. Sandra whispers in her mom's ear, who's like, <laughs> Yeah, okay. Layron, use water pump. Layron's water pump is one we've never seen before. It's more like a geyser. They put out the fire and send Team Rocket blasting off. Afterwards, Sandra and Savannah have a little heart-to-heart. -heart. As much as Sandra might have typical little kid vibes, like, my mom's so weird, she and her friends are kind of embarrassing when they're in fangirl mode, Sandra really does think her mom's the greatest and wants her to succeed. And she knows it's not easy to have a kid and make the Pokemon trainer dream go. It's a lot easier when you're 10 and traveling and freewheeling like Ash and May. But Sandra supports her mom in this. It, she knows how important it is to her and is cheering for her. Savannah's so touched to hear it. May and Bulbasaur get a lot of praise as well. They really came through here and worked great as a team despite being a brand new partnership. May was right to trust her instincts here, even if her instincts were partly based on spite. <laughs> and the episode ends with everyone looking forward to the contest tomorrow with optimism. So like I said earlier, it's not that this episode is inherently good. Like the conflicts and points of this episode get a little muddy sometimes. There's a lot of little scenes and reaction shots that we don't quite circle back around to a, a lot of things set up. Um, that don't necessarily pay off or, or they might go in a weird direction. And, and I think for this episode, I'm okay with all of that. Like, maybe it's just what I needed to hear today, but like, I love that we meet these ladies 
and they're painted out to be ridiculous and laughable and annoying. The middle-aged women obsessed with Justin Bieber, the mommy book club reading Fifty Shades of Grey, the housewives obsessed with Elvis, boy bands, the, the list is truly eternal. And then they turn out to be kind, supportive of each other and of May. Honest, generous, helping each other, really enthusiastic about what they're doing and still taking care of everything that is important to them and that society thinks is important to them. And they're doing that by helping each other. And just, it's wonderful. Even when Savannah's battling May to work through her stage fright, she's still praising every one of May's moves. Like, Savannah may not be super competitive, but she clearly loves Pokemon and loves all of the people enjoying Pokemon with her. And I also love that a kid can feel two different ways about a thing. You can think your mom is embarrassing and not get what she's into at all and still love and defend her for loving the thing, support her in the thing. Relate to her love of Pokemon and not relate at the same time, relate differently. Like, I love that that didn't end up being the central conflict. I love Sandra. I love that Savannah's sometimes unsure in balancing her interests and desires as a human being with her identity as a mom. That she worries that... If I used to be a Pokemon trainer, and now I'm not, am I less of a trainer? If I'm a mom, but doing contests, is that taking something away from my kid and my family? And she's not sure how to feel about Sandra taking it on herself to do something to help her. Like, like is she doing that to show her love and support? Or did I parentify her at a young age by daring to pursue my own interests? And, and how do I feel about other people in the village calling it out? And that... Sandra knows this about her mom, that she was able to perceive that and let her know, you're okay, mom, to have a life outside of making me dinner and cleaning. Like, I think it's cool that you also have your own dreams. You inspire me in my own dream. And I love that this show is showing these, quote, mom problems, adult women problems, like, wow. So I did some digging, and the screenplay for this episode was written by Matsui Aya, Aya Matsui, and yes, that is right, we have a confirmed female on staff. I don't think she's necessarily the first female on staff, and this is not her first episode either, um, but it is the first time I noticed it, because just, again, watching the nuances of a Japanese housewife <laughs> and trying to find her identity as a Pokemon trainer within that, I was like, there's no way a man wrote this. <laughs> so, yeah, um... Matsui is a very prolific television writer. She's written a lot of stuff um, for Dragon Ball GT, Hana Yoridango, lots of stuff. Um, but I just wanted to point that out because the way women and female relationships and, and Japanese housewives were handled in this episode just hit me as refreshing. Like just something about the flavor is different compared to um, the way... The men have written most of the female characters and female character problems thus far. Which is not to say that they've all been doing a horrible job all this time. Just diversity in the writer's room, in production, directing, animation, and everywhere in the industry matters. Because you can tell when something feels real and honest. When something feels fresh and different. And it just, it again, it just... Shows, like, diversity and inclusion doesn't always have to be a big thing. We don't always have to have this big episode about how someone put Misty down because she's a girl and look how she showed them up and that's how we're going to show our feminism. Sometimes it's just something as small as letting a woman write an episode 
about women being women, being Pokemon trainers, and an insecure little girl also trying to be a, a little girl being a Pokemon trainer and how they encourage each other. Like, is this episode winning an Emmy? No. <laughs> like, it's it's honestly not that great of an episode. But yet, it is going to run away as one of my favorites of the season now. Kind of like when Ash has had his phone call in episode two and how that's always impacted me with how honest and real and layered everything felt that he was going through that related um, related to me as a kid and related to me more as an adult, like just for how real it was. So much that I've thought about it for years and it hit on something true in my life. Like this is another episode with little moments that are just going to keep percolating in my mind and teaching me and giving me observations about life. And speaking to me personally as an adult woman trying to balance out my dreams with the responsibilities uh, that come with being an adult and especially an adult woman in an inherently patriarchal society. Like, good job, Ms. Matsui. Good job, team. I definitely don't expect everyone to like this episode. Like, because again, as I say, it's not great. Um, but that is part of why I do this podcast is because even the little throwaway episodes of Pokemon, um, that don't seem like they're going anywhere, that maybe even weren't the best written, still have something to teach us, still have things going on that are unique or different or could be applied to our lives. And honestly, a woman getting to write about women being women is something that we still struggle to let happen today. And this episode happened like nearly two decades ago. I'm so glad they let this happen. I'm so glad Pokemon let a woman be on the writer staff, that they saw this person and her work and was like, yes, you deserve to be here. Like this just makes me so happy. <laughs> uh, and that's where we'll leave um, the episode today because uh, the next episode will make me significantly less happy. Um, it is going to be number 78, Cruisin' for a Losin'. Uh, it will build off of what happened in this episode, but not necessarily in the best way. Um, but we'll get to that next time. Until then, if you want to contact the podcast, we're, uh, at pkpodcast at gmail.com. We're technically on Twitter, lurking around, hardly ever posting, but occasionally liking a comment here and there, and definitely just kind of waiting to see if the dumpster fire ever stops burning. And also, as always, peakappypodcast.blogspot.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thank you for listening. This has been Peak Happy Podcast. Best wishes and gotta catch them all. Yeah.